So good day to everyone. Welcome to MSACL Connect and thank you for joining us today for a special troubleshooting session titled Getting Going with Mass Spectrometry, Josh Attempts Method Validation. This is the final installment or maybe not so final if we have sam sample prep later, but of a four-part series in which Dr. Joshua Hayden invites attendees to witness in real time his journey bringing mass spec testing to a clinical lab. During this interactive session, attendees are encouraged to help troubleshoot and offer advice as desired. I see we have a few mentors on already, so great. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Also, huge thanks to our MSACL Connect Platinum sponsors, which includes Golden West Diagnostics, Thermoscientific, and Brian Kelly for their generous contributions that are supporting the provision of this and other educational content on the Connect platform. My name is Amber Harold, and I'll be co-hosting the session today with Chris Harold. Now, <clears throat> Dr. Joshua Hayden is currently the Chief of Chemistry at Norton Healthcare. He earned his PhD in chemistry from Carnegie Mellon University. He conducted postdoctoral research at Massachusetts Institute of Technology before completing a two-year chemi clinical chemistry fellowship at University of Washington and four years as assistant professor at Whale Medical College. Joshua has special expertise developing and overseeing mass spectrometry assays in the clinical laboratory. If you have a question during Joshua's presentation, please submit it using the chat box or raise your hand or just unmute or jump in. Presentation today is expected to be interactive, so we're not sure how long it will run, but after the presentation and Q&A, we will remain on the line for a daily networking and chat time. Josh, I think I'm through my intro bit, so I will give you the floor and let's begin. All right, thank you. So I'm going to try to share my screen, which I think is working. I'm yes, looking looks for, good. for approving head shakes or, or uh, head nods. Yes. Right? Um, so yes, as was said, and with previous ones, right, the the goal here is we get a lot more out of out of questions and and what you'd like to see um, than what I have to say, of course. And we've had some fantastic mentors, uh, which I think is is great to have some more on again today. Um, but we'll jump in just to remind everybody uh, where we're at. Right, this is our our system's steps towards implementing comprehensive urine drug screening, which will be our first application of tandem mass spectrometry. Um, when we started this, we had really wanted uh, two workflows, one with a hydrolysis, one without a hydrolysis. Now we've gone to two sample prep workflows and three panels, right? So that'll be a, a non-hydrolysis for our buprenorphine analytes, which we've been talking about. A second, which is a non-hydrolysis method with a different column for the ethyl glucuronide, ethyl sulfate, um, which we talked about in the, the chromatography section. Those are really going to need a, a separate column at this point. And then the third would be our hydrolysis method for the larger panel where we want to cleave off those glucuronides for our, our opiates, morphine, hydromorphone, as well as the, the benzos. And so most of our time has been spent on this, this first one, uh, that's the non-hydrolysis buprenorphine method, right? And, uh, you know, for those keeping track, we haven't done an excellent job staying on time. I just wanted to give a little, little background, right? So one thing which has been going on uh, while all of this is working is we've actually been in the midst of building a new offsite laboratory uh, for our system. 
So this laboratory is going to consolidate all of our esoteric testing, as well as perform all of our reference laboratory testing, um, and also put to use uh, an abandoned Kmart facility in our community. Um, so that's been really exciting to actually get to, to go to the old Kmart. This is, this is an early picture of us there checking out the space. And of course, when I talk about consolidating esoteric testing at this point in time, that means mass spectrometry for our system. So our mass specs will be moving there. Uh, so we've kind of been progressing. So we, we identified a nice little, little corner uh, in that room. The corner was sort of strategic so that if we ever had to, we could consider putting a cage around it if we want to do some chain of custody drug screen. Not saying we're doing that now, but who knows what the future holds. And we've been progressing, uh, building things up. This is actually the space as of yesterday. You can maybe see in the on the left-hand side where we're planning on sitting our Hamilton Nimbus. Uh, in the kind of back right, we still have to put in the, the chemical fume hood. Um, we had some exhaust pipes coming down, and then we have uh, two ion benches, which are going to sit on either side of those poles to hold our, our tandem mass specs, right? So things are actually moving along, and by about the end of this month, we hope to be slowly moving all of our instruments out there and starting the process of uh, validation all over again. Um, but this has been a busy time. So just to mention too, it, it's truly been an, an all hands on deck approach. Uh, this is this is my daughter in, in the ABLE construction hat, which I've been spending more time in a hard hat than I, I thought I would be. Um, and she, I think is actually really excited that I now have a hard hat for a little bit. Um, so busy time, but exciting time for our system. And it doesn't mean that anything's stopped, right? We're still working on actually uh, setting up our, our urine drug screen. I've been able to add uh, methadone and fentanyl, which are two analytes that don't have glucuronide metabolites that we'd like to be able to add to our non-hydrolysis panel. The fentanyl and its metabolite norfentanyl went really well. Uh, methadone, UTDP also went really well. Um, so in our experience, at least with our triple quad instruments, uh, those two classes of compounds fly really well, um, which has been great to see. We've also been continuing the conversations with our providers, um, which is something I wanted to mention just because sometimes we can get very wrapped up in this method development and the chemistry aspect, uh, but it's good to kind of step back and remember that, you know, we're here to offer panels and assays that meet our providers' needs. Um, so, you know, for instance, I just recently had a, a great conversation a few weeks ago as we were talking about our buprenorphine assay, and what really became apparent was the need for us to add naloxone. Um, now, I'd always thought that the naloxone was there as a marker of uh, sample tampering. And of course, it, it can do that, right? If, if patients are diverting their, uh, their prescribed buprenorphine, or maybe they've been uh, taking non-prescribed substances, you know, they might try to adulterate their urine with the medication itself, in which case you would see sort of the, the naloxone and buprenorphine uh, without any of the metabolites. So I had initially thought that we would really be able to get that with just having the glucuronides. But, you know, it turns out there's also this very big question of, of suboxone, which is going to contain naloxone as a deterrent for abuse uh, versus prescription subutex. Um, and actually there's substantially higher uh, street value for subutex because it doesn't have that naloxone. So there's more 
potential uh, abuse potential for Subutex. It's more desirable. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of interest in our providers knowing this. So it was great to have that conversation. So certainly that's, that's a new analyte on this panel that we've been working on adding. Um, but while we're working on that, right, we still have our sort of SOP, which we've developed and talked about last time, pretty simple dilute and shoot method. And we did what I would consider some preliminary development work, right? So when I say development, we're getting down to limits of quantitation based on serial dilution of pure standard compound into blank urine at about the limits that we want to be able to see. So one nanogram per mil for buprenorphine, norbup, and then five nanograms per mil for the glucuronides. We look at a little five by five study, right? This is where we're doing five injections uh, at analyte levels kind of across that calibration range from one to 1,000 nanograms per mil over five days. And we're seeing CVs uh, just below 5%. We've spiked these samples into 10 blank urines, gotten recoveries within 20%. Um, and after correcting for some calibrator bias, which we had with our homemade calibrators and uh, switching to commercial calibrators, we're seeing agreement within about 10% for a little over five samples uh, sample correlation. Now I'm very cautiously calling this development, right? Because we're not yet at the stage of validation. And so this is something that you know, has taken me a while to sort of wrap my head around that, you know, you really want to develop a method first before you start down that path of validation. And so the way that I kind of finally understood it is you should think about method development like a first date, right? This is really an opportunity for, for uh, high risk, take a shot. Worst they can do is say, no, maybe it doesn't work out. You all go about your way, right? versus method validation, which should be more of the sort of marriage proposal level, right? You don't want to invest in a ring and a fancy proposal if you're like, I don't know, she might not be the one, right? She might, she might say no, right? You, you really, with the marriage proposal, want to have a high degree of confidence that you might get the answer you want, right? Or in the case of method validation, you don't want to start down that road until you have a, some degree of confidence that the method you're working with is going to pass validation. And so when I talk about these development studies, these are just some things which, which we think about trying to do to give us that confidence that this might be worth working on. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned this, I want to say that these, uh, you know, CVs and target values, right, these, are, these are more gestalt than, than data-driven, right? So absolutely happy to hear people's thoughts to say, no, you know, that's not good enough. Or, you know, are there additional studies that we should be, we should be thinking about um, when we're looking at this? But that's what we're going with. I guess the one that I forgot is, is of course, stability, which I think is always an important thing in the clinical laboratory. If the, the analyte's not stable, um, it's not really worth your time. But so with this development work out of the way, we, we felt comfortable to kind of start investing in the ring and, and you know, asking the question. Um, so as we start down these validation studies, I should mention here that I, I did spend uh, about four years in New York City. And one of the things I loved about working in New York is that 
the Department of Health, DOH, and Wadsworth Center um, actually has their own laboratory developed test, LDT regulations. And I know that there's a lot of discussion about FDA regulation of LDTs and, and there's pros and cons. I'm not gonna weigh into that here. Um, but what I have found helpful is that some of the LDT regulations that Wadsworth has actually put out, I think are very sensible, reasonable guidance for us anywhere in the country or the world when you're thinking about trying to develop a clinical assay that is sufficiently robust for clinical use. And so what I've copied here is actually from the, the, uh, the website there, and it talks about sort of the standard operating procedure that you want to have for any assay that you're submitting for New York State approval. And I think that there's some, some great items here that I wanted to, to call your attention to. Um, so one of the first is this, you know, reagent source preparation, storage, stability, and handling, right? Um, and that's not just for in-house, right? That's source verification of standards, calibrators, QC material, if you purchase them commercially. Um, and this is something that I don't think that we often think about when you're in kind of the automated chemistry world, you don't often think about receiving FDA approved uh, vendor reagents and checking them out to make sure if they pass mustard. But it absolutely is something that you have to do if you're utilizing uh, a lab developed test for, uh, using mass spectrometry. And so of course, if you're preparing them yourself, there might be more rigorous, but that doesn't mean that there aren't um, you know, verification studies you need to do. And so that got us thinking about some of the things that we actually purchase as commercial supplies and what we're going to do to ensure them for the long, the long term uh, run of this assay. Of course, the first one that comes to mind is, you know, we're, we're purchasing commercial internal standards, right? So what do we need to do to verify our internal standards? I mentioned here that these are, again, just my proposed criteria. Um, so you guys can go ahead and, and tell me that these are, these are too stringent or not stringent enough. And certainly for the internal standards, I think preparing up a solution and analyzing them for purity is minimum and maybe sufficient. Uh, we don't have any attempt at assessing quantity of the internal standards, um, but we are going to try to look at purity of them, right? So if we receive a, a deuterated buprenorphine SAM, uh, vial, uh, we want to check to make sure there's no detectable non-deuterated versions that could potentially bleed into that buprenorphine. Of course, for us, we're going to be purchasing calibrators, right? And so now the question comes, how are we going to ensure uh, the new batches of calibrators, or even when we thaw out a new aliquot of calibrators, right? Um, and so what, what we're planning is, you know, checking the accuracy of those levels. So actually running the old calibrators on our, on our instrument, and then analyzing the new lot of calibrators as if they were samples, and ensuring that the average over three different preparations is plus or minus 10% the expected value. Is that enough? I don't know. I, you know, it's 
something, not nothing. Um, so that's our plan, at least. Uh, quality control. Right? So this is something which I think a lot of us are more familiar with. And this would be determining target values uh, with 10 replicate injections over 10 days. So these QCs are things that we're intending to make ourselves in-house by spiking urine. Part of the reason for that is because the absolute concentration of them, I'm a little less concerned about. I want to get, you know, a range near the lower limit and upper limit of quantum and something in the middle. Um, but as long as we're, you know, able to set a target mean, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. But certainly columns, right? So eventually we're going to have to get a new column, whether that's 500 injections, a thousand injections, whatever it, it happens to be based on our, our chromatography. Um, so checking out a new column to make sure that retention time for all of our analytes are within two and a half percent. And that two and a half percent is, is my sort of looking at the CLSI guidelines and saying that retention times for analytes should be within two and a half percent. So it seems like that would be uh, an appropriate metric when we're assessing a, a new column. Uh, but then there's some other ones that honestly, I wasn't planning on evaluating. Um, you know, I wasn't going to necessarily check out when we get a new lot of methanol or LCMS grade water. I wasn't planning on checking our, our formic acid. Um, we've also started using ammonium formate uh, for the opioid panel and weren't planning on checking that or looking into injection, blade, injection plates or pipette tips. Now, certainly if we were to switch suppliers of that, right, so our SOPs have catalog numbers. So it's not just that we buy a 96-well injection plate, we buy this 96-well injection plate catalog number, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Um, so I think if I were to switch vendors or sourcing of, of the injection plates, I might check it out. But just curious, does, does anyone in the audience actually routinely evaluate new lots, batches of, of mobile phase injection plates or things like that? Yes, we do. Uh, this is Dorothy from Edgeland. Uh, typically, we are running triple scan on new laws of uh, mobile faces, especially when we notice some uh, of the sensitivity uh, degrading. Hmm. So, so do you do that just if you notice a problem or do you do it proactively before you start running? We typically do it when we notice some issues. Okay. Hey, this is Deb. Um, can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Deb. Um, we actually check every lot of mobile face that we make um, with patient comparisons wow. before we put it into use. We, we had an issue years ago where one of the additives was degrading and we didn't know what was called, but we didn't know that. <laughs> it, it took us a while to figure out why the chromatography went bad and um, that was the reason. And so we actually um, have had people make mobile phase incorrectly too. And so we we do uh, patient comparisons, but we, we also actually do that for columns because we've had two horrific incidents where we went to a new lot of column and we didn't realize, but we were reporting incorrect 
patient concentrations by up to 40% different. And all we did was change the column lot. So it was the same column. The retention time didn't shift. Um, but obviously there was something going on between the different between the annually and internal standard. And it did actually change our patient concent sample concentrations. So now the rule is as soon as we get, as soon as we put a new column onto the instrument, we buy a new one and then do patient comparisons. So that is another very helpful suggestion. I really should have exit, exited presenter mode so that I can um, edit this as we go. So, so what I'm hearing, Deb, is that in addition to evaluating column for retention time of all analytes, we actually need to evaluate for uh, recovery as well. Is that a fair summary of what you're saying? I would say so. Just in our experience, it's happened to us with two different um, methods now. Um, and I think if you were to use, I think it's partly because we use deuterium labeled internal standards. I think if we were to use carbon-13, we may not see this problem. I, I okay. can't prove that. But um, because of the lack of availability of carbon-13 labeled internal standards or the fact that when we got a quote, it was $45,000 to make it. Um, we didn't do that. <laughs> so <laughs> the, new, the new rule is institute, um, uh, we test the columns, but actually we're in the process of completely revalidating one of our methods because we couldn't get another column that worked. We got two. Wow. So we got the one in, when we were in development and then validation, and we had another one that worked, and then we've never been able to get another one to work. And so we're actually completely revalidating our method with a different column. Wow. So, you know, that, that actually reminds me, one of the, the eye-opening experiences for me when I moved into the clinical lab, you know, I, I think the major differences in the research lab, the goal is to, to try to, to do something. doesn't matter if you can do it once, twice, right? You just have to do it enough to get a, get a publication. Um, and then, of course, you move into into the, the clinical lab and the goal is reproducibility, right? And so I'm thinking about this because, uh, you know, there was a certain uh, batch of protein that we were able to get certain results on and that was plenty adequate for, for a publication, even though I would say four out of five batches didn't give us, you know, weren't amenable to it. And in a research sense, that's perfectly fine. In a clinical sense, it is not so fine. So yeah, I, I think it's a it's a little scary hearing hearing that that horror story, but good to know that we have to check uh, here at Norton uh, evaluate for patient recovery. And also, I think it's a great point about the fact that you don't want to just be thinking about can I do this method with a column? It's can I reliably and reproducibly do it with columns that I can always buy? Yeah. And I am going to. I, I've got a quick question for Deb. Um, how did how did the QC not show a problem, but the patient samples did? Is that just? That's a good question. Um, our, our QC samples are patient. Um, patient pool. No, patient. actually, sorry, Russ, it didn't. So our, our QC are patient samples, but they're spiked. So it's just. Um, you know, patient, in this case, it was plasma, patient plasma spiked with the analyte and um, the QC did not show a problem. 
Um, but and so it was it was one of the pharmacists that called me and asked me like are you sure these results are right they seem a bit low and I'm like okay let me take a look and I looked at everything that we normally look at and the run was completely fine um, and so you know we sent the samples out to a reference lab that previously we had compared really well with yeah the iron ratios were good for us um, and then, yeah, so we sent the samples out and for some of them, it was it was concentration dependent as well. So the higher the concentration, the worse the, um, the worse the comparison was. It was up to 40% different. So thank God for the pharmacist. That's all I can say. <laughs> That's a good point to be aware of. Uh, this is Kim Robiak at Penn State. We, um, we validate every, so we'll order 40 bottles of like methanol with formic acid for our vitamin D. And then we label, even though it's the same lot, we label each bottle like A, B, C, D. And then um, we have a five liter um, uh, container that we put three bottles in together. And then we validate every time we change that mobile phase um, with five patients. And we typically have, have not had a problem where the validation failed that the patients were off. However, we often see differences in responses so even though it's the very same lot, we might combine some bottles that are like E, F, and G, and the response may go down drastically. So um, it, that's something that we just keep an eye on. It hasn't been a problem for us. However, it is something that we uh, track and in, in keep in a data spreadsheet. And we do the columns as well. Every single column, even though it's the same lot of columns, we still validate that with five patients. Hey, wow. Russ, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, so there are two papers, but one particularly by Tom Amsley. I want to say Clin Biochem. I want to say 2005, um, where he talks about different, air quotes, methanols not behaving the same. Maybe Andy had a paper as well, but I know Tom Amsley had a paper 15 years ago. If I can find it because the funny thing is, there is no set grade for mass spec grade. It's, it's just a fancy set of letters that make you pay three. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's funny you mention that. I do remember when I was in New York, we found uh, one particular lot of methanol, or no, I apologize, it was acetonitrile uh, that was causing terrible sample stability of our ascomycin internal standard. And yeah, uh, I'd kind of forgotten about that till just talking about it. Um, but I, and I also hadn't realized there wasn't a specific grade. I guess I assumed that LCMS meant something on the bottle, but I also assume my coffee is organic when it says it is. And, <laughs> and you know, that my, my bananas didn't, come from some horrible place that's mistreating and killing people. Uh, and I, those are both probably untrue. So, um, absolutely no standard. It's just, a uh, need to pay more money. I think, yeah. No standard. Yeah. Oh, uh, so there is a question. If there isn't a grade, then are there preferred vendors that people can share for LCMS? Um, so 
So I'm not going to answer that because I don't have enough experience to cast stones at anybody. Um, I, I think one of the things I'm hearing is definitely testing out any vendor that you work with just to make sure. Although I will say that, uh, is it Burdick and Jackson that, uh, that I seem to, to hear a lot about? Um, and I see uh, Tim has, has just commented on that. Um, it's someone that they found best, which is, which is not to say that others aren't you know, perfectly acceptable um, but that is a name that I, that I hear. And I'll say that when we got our reagent shipped to us for our LCMS MS checkout, that was, that was the grade that they shipped, which makes me think that, you know, that particular vendor wanted to make sure their instrument passed specs, um, not because of a, you know, mobile phase issue, but yeah, it's a great, great question. And if, if folks are okay, I'm going to leave this in the non-presenter mode. Um, I'm, I, can see, I can see Chris and his camera. If I get a, a positive head nod, I'm gonna leave it there just because it's, it's better for me to include this, right? Because I should mention, this is what we're gonna be setting out to do is our criteria for accepting it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's also a great point that, you know, we should do something for a mobile phase. I think one of the reasons that I wasn't planning on it is kind of as we get a subsequent slide, you'll see we're, we're talking about some of our, our QC samples, right? And so um, it's another aspect that New York State says they want to have in your, in your um, SOP, uh, what you submit, you need to, address quality assurance, right? critical steps and test procedure, quality control measures taken to control and monitor assay performance, um, you know, things like number, frequency, placement of QC samples and an analytic run, right? So that had me thinking about what are kind of our, our QC samples, keeping in mind that, you know, I, I'm not talking here about just level one, two, three QC, I'm talking about, you know, quality control the assay for that day. Um, so what, what we were planning is, uh, a system suitability sample, right? Where we would have all of our analytes uh, just in in methanol. Um, and for those who are following along in the in the in the chat, there's some other great positive comments about vendors folks have been happy with, as well as uh, Russ shared the citations to the methanol associated matrix effects uh, from Tom Ansley. Um, but so the system suitability check is, you know. That's where I was thinking, you know, maybe we don't have to be as worried about each mobile phase lot because if we run a system suitability check, I have certainly been in labs um, where, you know, mobile phase A and B get switched, right? And typically you detect that when your system suitability sample shows us that, um, you know, the retention times aren't agreeing. And so I, I do really think after doing whatever necessary daily maintenance you need on your instrument and then equilibrating the column. I think that sort of injection of a system suitability sample um, in just methanol can be a, a very helpful way to tell you if there was some sort of, you know, uh, oopsie error. Um, and uh, then beyond that, we were looking at doing a, a blank. Uh, and then of course, 
a double blank. So difference there, the, the blank has nothing but internal standard double blank has absolutely nothing. Um, we were looking at running seven calibrator levels um, as well as our three homemade control samples. With our calibrators, we definitely had some questions, you know, uh, I hear a lot of people who, who bracket their batches, right? Having calibrators in, you know, the front and end of your patient samples. I've seen people who do uh, double injection of calibrators. I've even seen triple injection. Um, I wasn't currently planning on bracketing the calibrators. I can't see anybody's video. I was looking to see if anybody made like a wincy face. Like that is a terrible idea to not do that. Um, nor were we necessarily planning on, on double or triple injection of the calibrators. Uh, and my thinking here, just to defend myself, is that I'm not going to inject patient samples at the beginning and end. I'm not going to, um, you know, double, triple inject every patient sample. And so if I can't rely on my method to give an accurate result of a single uh, injection, then maybe I, I have bigger problems that uh, won't be fixed with just double, triple injecting uh, the calibrators. But I don't, <clears throat> I don't know, do folks here do bracketing with their calibrators? Do you, do you ever do multiple injections? Josh, if you want to ask a yes or no question, we can use the reactions. Oh, but we do have some coming in from Tim and Russ. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that we had a reaction. This is, this yeah, is look, I can do, if you ask yes or no, people can do the green okay. check for yes under the reactions button or a, a no. It's, it's so <laughs> good. That yeah, it's so good that you guys are here because I don't know how to do any of this stuff. But um, <laughs> so, yes, I will let you know next time we need a reaction. Um, but, oh, and, you know, so sorry, please go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. You go ahead. I was just seeing, um, you know, three levels of QC, two replicates interspersed throughout the run, always end with a QC coming from, from Tim and uh, – Russ saying bracket calibration directly incorrectly interpreted from FDA guidance and frankly batch centric thinking QCs if used appropriately are the correct canary. Hmm. So uh, I'm I'm getting a sense and uh, you know that you know um, <laughs> and Russ is calling people sheep um, and saying that if you're doing studies for FDA regulatory submission uh, yes bracketing calibrator. So I'm feeling a little better about not doing my bracketed calibrators. Uh, but based on Tim's comment and what Russ is hinting at, I think that we're about to get some of those, those cringy faces. So Amber, if you wanted to, to put up the, the assessment um, of, I'm about to show people what we were planning to do in terms of our, our plate layout. Um, and Ooh, Grace is also going to be disappointed in me. Wow, this is, this is, you know, I've gotten used to letting my mom down, but letting like professional mentors down, it's like a whole nother level of, of disappointment for me. But all right, so I'm going to show people what we were thinking for our plate layout for a day-to-day -day patient run. And people can maybe give us a reaction. Is that, is that true, Amber? And yes or no? Yeah, it, it is true. If people can find at the bottom of their Zoom window, there's all the buttons with like mute and stop video. And you might have a more button with the dot, dot, dot. And one of your buttons should be reactions. And in there, you can just easily click the yes button 
or the no button. And we can see, you know, what the consensus is through the group if people can do that. So right, what's so the question you're asking? So how do people feel about this proposed layout of our QC samples, right? So the plan was to do a system suitability sample just in an injection vial. And then our plate, which we would start injecting, would have a, a double blank in A1. And then we go Cal 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 in A2 through A8. And then we do the blank in A9. And then QCs in A10, A11, A12. And then it would be all patients all the time. So the question is, yes, this is a good plan or no, it's not? Yes, this is a good plan. No, it's not. Okay. And yeah. Okay. I got one thumbs up. That makes me feel good. Can we talk a bit about that, Alina? Um, so you're saying that sword pipe. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. So do, do other people not have the yes or no buttons? Is that what I'm seeing here? I, I think people I, I, are not I think, I think you put them in the wrong area. It's not under reactions for the yes and no. It's under participants. I think you said it was under reactions. Oh, it is under reactions now for me. Is it different for you? Maybe it's a version thing. Yeah. Maybe I'm leading us down the wrong track, Josh. Sorry about that. <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter because I, I think you certainly had the right track for some people because, because I saw some uh, surprised which I'm taking to be unhappy faces. And, and I saw a thumbs up, which made me feel good, right? So, so does anybody who, who supported this, is this what other people are, are basically doing? Um, and folks who, who yeah. We, we also have a question, need more info to answer the question, or we have a statement, they need more info. Okay. Um, Russ agrees with Tim. Need more info to answer the question. Sorry, yeah, I, I, I probably uh, shouldn't have shouldn't have put this on you too soon. Um, maybe the the question really is: I'm planning on every day that we report patient results, having our sort of uh, work list be as laid out here: a system suitability sample uh, in an injection vial, and then double blank cows blank. QC one, two, three, and then all patients. And so this would be what I'm showing here, injections, let's call it one system suitability, <clears throat> two would be double blank, three would be Cal one all the way through, and then it would be all patients. So what's after the samples is more samples. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess, uh, you know, it- and, and hand, Tim's, hand up there, Amber. Oh, sorry, Peng. Yes, please go ahead. All right, so my question would be, if something bad happened at sample 56, how do you know? <laughs> uh, we would not know. Um, right, because if, if you were to insert, if you were to insert a QC of some sort, let's say regularly, let's say every 11 samples, I don't know, every 20 samples, then at least you, you would know everything before that is still acceptable. And after that, if something happened, then we can ditch whatever comes after that, right? can still save uh, okay. whatever but, comes before. I think that's a pretty good point. I mean, it comes to my question, which I think Russ commented on before, and I've just been reading up recently. We're gonna have a, be, have a presentation on it, on Connect soon is in-sample calibration. Um, I don't know what everyone thinks about that, but that would solve that problem, I think, so. Yeah, so I'm, I'm seeing a, I'm seeing a 
a pretty strong, pretty strong support um, for what folks are saying. And and Tim's asking me what CLSI 62A recommends. And, and Tim, if I could remember that, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and Russ remembers because he wrote it because that doesn't even count. Like, I, I know what I said in my diary last night too, Russ. I'm not bragging about it. Right? <laughs> um, you know, but no, I, I think, you know, so, so, let me let me summarize some of the things that I'm getting from this. And and you know, uh, Kim made a, a great point talking about you know what do you do if you have uh, another plate needed, right? Um, but so that's a great question too. Um, but what I'm hearing is you know folks folks seem to be okay with me including my calibrators all sort of group together. Um, but then it sounds like a strong emphasis is actually placing the, the QCs, not one after the other, uh, as we do in our auto analyzers in the chemistry lab, as Russ nicely pointed out, but we don't have to do that with mass spec. We can actually intersperse them throughout. Right. And I, I'm seeing some, some, uh, yes, this, this does not account for drift. That is absolutely, it's a great point to actually highlight and very helpful, I think, to remember it. It's not just about, you know, you know, is this right or wrong? It's why is this right or wrong, right? And one of the points is what actually happens uh, if, as, as Peng mentioned, something happens mid-run, uh, your system gets um, contaminated or, you know, sensitivity losses, or uh, I'm not sure, um, what all could happen. Um, but of course, that's the point of having QCs, right? Is that we can't always predict what's going to happen, but we can try to control and prevent release of inaccurate patient samples. And so, um, you know, what I'm hearing folks say is that, you know, these QCs need to be intermixed, right? And I'm also hearing that three levels of QC, or let me rephrase that, three QCs might not be appropriate, right? So we're, we're looking at a possibly a, a 96 well plate, right? And so 5% of that, which is what was sort of tossed out, right? Now we're looking at, let's round up, um, you know, five QC samples uh, interspersed throughout the plate. Um, and, and what I love about this is that, you know, we can very often fall into doing what we think is good lab practice without thinking that, you know, there's a different way we could be doing it, which ensures a higher quality of patient results. It takes me just as much time to do three QCs at wells A10, A11, and A12, as it does to do three QCs at B3, D9, E11, right? Um, and so I, I really appreciate that that uh that comment um and russ still wants to talk about where qcs are supposed to be right uh not in the plate for clinical error detection so i'm not sure i understand that comment uh yeah, I'll, so I'll just come my quickly and i'm gonna shut up again so one of the things we think we're sampling QCs as opposed to, I'll let you type that one, I can type that one. 
When we think about QCs, they are the canary. That's exactly the way we run clinical analyzers. We don't recalibrate every day. We don't calibrate every week. Sometimes we don't calibrate until we put a new reagent pack on. And that's where that industry, our industry has taken real-time data analysis as a core requirement to you know, measure anything that's on hand, on hand sample analysis. I think the internal calibration Chris alluded to is our way of literally making mass spectrometry capable of doing that without input. Um, when I think about QCs, I don't just think about where they are in a run. I think about where they are in concentration space and what they are for. I mean, they are for determination of medical error. If you put them too close or at a medical decision boundary, 50% of the time they're going to be positive and negative, toxic, normal. So therapeutics, therapeutics, so there's a whole sort of undercurrent of not just how many, but where do they fit? Well, if you think about testosterone, for instance, there are 17 reference intervals. You can't put a QC in reference intervals. You've never run a sample, all right? So I, I, I don't know if you're going to touch on this, but if you anticipate running QCs, our standard practice, Josh, is really to, to bracket front and back of plates Calibrate first plate, blanks QCs like this. The back of the first plate, some QCs blank. Start of a second plate, blank QCs. End of a second plate, either QCs blank or QCs blank calibrators if we have to bookend calibrators for regulatory submissions or drug development. So we, we do tend to bracket plates. And that actually, believe it or not, allows us to consider whether plate within plate bracketing with a full set can release a plate calibrated with acceptable QCs and then if something happens during the second plate, well then we have a re-injection but we can at least accelerate the release of the first plate, everything being acceptable. We're also not normal. But no, yeah, it's, it's a good question, right? I, I was dwelling here on, on QC location, but there's a whole question about, you know, what are the levels of, of QC um, that you actually want to use? And I think there was, a, there was a, a good question asked about how do you feel about resampling a QC sample as opposed to using more wells? You know, it's interesting. Um, hadn't really thought about it. Certainly it's easy for auto injectors to, to resample a well. Um, so yeah, I, I can't say that I've, uh, I've got an answer. For, I've got an answer for that. Sure, please. So one of the practices that I, I have seen is uh, something very much like this, Josh. Calibrators and QCs to QC the assay in the morning. And then as samples come along throughout the day, just prepare samples, add internal standards, do preparation, put them on and keep reporting. Well, are we using the same pipettes? Is it the same system? Um, is the internal standard the same? This construct to set up valid, to set a calibration system and then QC that calibration system, separating that from running patient samples, is incredibly it's the same concept, I think. The question is, if we have, a, if we take these three QCs and we re-inject them later on during the day, what is that a measure of? That's a measure of the performance or the control of the measurement system, but not the preparation. When we think about what QCs are for, are they for the 
downstream or, or they for the entire process. And generally, they are the entire process, as you well know. Um, so re-injecting has some aspects of, of what control or what you can interpret from it, but it's not contemporaneous with the preparation of samples, which again, I come back to this point, internal calibration actually could absolve all of this. Yeah, yeah, no, so it, it's a great point that there are multiple things that QC is is testing, right? We're, I don't wanna go off the rails, but we're gonna be using a, a liquid handler, right? What if, what if it, at some point it starts, you know, dripping volatile solvents into the wells um, later on? We're not gonna control for that if we're only resampling from a plate um, because we need to control not only the measurement system, but the, the sample prep. So yeah, I know a, a good a good point that there are multiple things to control, um, and actually, you know, intermixing these QCs um, is one reconfiguration and making sure that they're intermixed in the sample processing um, as another. No, so that's that's great. Um, maybe just uh, continue on, um, you know. So then we kind of talk about you know our our review. And acceptance of the batch, right? I think that it's important to make sure if you're gonna if you're gonna run something. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is, uh, well, you know, there's that there's that great line. It's I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. Right? Um, that irks me a lot. Not because like I'm a huge pro pornography person, but just because like it's this notion that I can't tell you what what I would consider acceptable, but when I'll see it, I'll know if it's acceptable. Like, I, that, that doesn't work for me, right? And so I, I think it's important we're trying to have some acceptability criteria before we're doing things, right? Um, you know, so it's just some suitability sample, you know, why are the technologists running that? And what should they consider an acceptable run of that? Um, and so these are kind of the, the criteria we're, we're proposing, um, you know, with our, our calibrators, you know, setting a slope within an acceptable range and uh, our, you know, calibrator accuracy being within plus or minus 15%, our, our QC, we were gonna be using just kind of more general uh, Levy Jennings charts, QC rules, things like that. Um, maybe just in the interest of time, I'll, I'll follow through. Although if, if people see things that really make them say, please don't, tell an audience to, to use those, those criteria, please go ahead and, and, and jump in. Um, but uh, otherwise, you know, we, we go to review and acceptance of samples, right? So it's not just how do we decide that we have a successful calibration or QC, but how do we actually decide that we have acceptable samples? Um, this is kind of going back to that, that previous discussion, you know, we've kind of down. So the retention time criteria, plus or minus two and a half percent, Tim, you'll be happy to know that that actually is from, from CLSI uh, 62A. I, I'm fairly confident that's where I, I got that. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, I was reading my personal hand notes where I had listed that as the source, right? So something I was frantically writing down at an MSACL um, and using a similar idea for for relative retention time. Oh, and it looks like Deb French actually wrote that section. So thank you, Russ. So so Deb is here, and Deb can definitely put me in my place. I'll, even though it's you know 
11 a.m. there on West Coast time. So, um, but I've heard Deb give talks at like, what was it like 4 a.m. time uh, out there in, in California. So I'm sure she's awake. Um, anyways, you know, so, so these are sort of our, our starting thoughts, right? I'm not saying these are great, um, but defining internal standard recoveries and ion ratios is plus or minus 30% of um, the calibrators. Um, yeah, so Kim's asking, uh, do we only monitor the internal standard for calibrators and not patients? Yes, and so I, I apologize. Uh, that is very poorly worded, right? So uh, what I should say here is patient internal standard recovery areas, because we will be monitoring internal standard recoveries for every patient sample. Um, but there's this question of, can you do this? Gosh, everybody's seeing my terrible spelling. Um, can you do this historically, right? So can we validate this? And I say that my internal standard will recover uh, 10,000 area counts. And then every patient sample run every day, let's say with that same batch of IS, assuming it's stable, should I be able to say that they're gonna be plus or minus that set number? Um, you know, as I've been trying to look into what people are doing and what seems to work, and I'm really sorry, Kim, I just realized that was a, a direct message. <laughs> so I, I, I hope you're okay with me sharing this broadly to the group. Um, and I'm confident I have just scared off anyone else from uh, direct messaging me. So I'm sorry, uh, but I really think it's a great question, right? Because it was very unclear there. And there is this question of, do we actually do this? So the, the reason I mentioned uh, of that day's calibrators is because it seems like if you have more variation in your performance, um, actually, you know, setting your batch criteria for internal standard recoveries or ion ratios based on how your calibrators perform that day is one, an easier bar. It's a lower bar, right? And I, I realize that that doesn't sound like a good thing, right? To be shooting for the low bar. But I think in some ways it's maybe, I feel a more realistic bar, right? I, I've been in the situation of asking the clinical lab to, to try to, you know, hit a target, which is just unmanageable. And I think it leads to this terrible practice where folks don't think very much of quality assurance approaches because every sample fails quality assurance approaches. Um, and so that, that was my thinking for how we might be able to try to address this while still actually monitoring. But I don't know if folks out here are, are monitoring their, their IS recoveries, you know, based on that day's batch or, or whether they're doing it based on validation data. Um, but that's, that's, uh, what we were thinking there for both, um, the IS recoveries and, and the calibrators. Yeah. And another great question, Kim, how did we determine the 30% value? Um, oh, thank you, Grace. So Grace is saying she's doing it on the day's batch. Um, so the 30% value is based on, um, Oh, and 30% is EUTOX guidance. I'm trying to think if I can pretend like I actually knew that, Russ, um, but I don't think I could pull that off. Um, so 
you know, we chose 30% because when I have looked at the multitude of samples that we run, um, as we've, you know, worked up samples with the same concentration of internal standard, that seems to be a bar where we're actually going to be able to pass it on most instances, but it will sometimes, you know, cause issues. So it's not so wide that we're going to be uh, passing everything that's bad, but it's not so narrow that we're going to have a huge number of, of failures. Um, and Tim is saying it's recommended using day's batch. If the uh, internal standard intensity can decrease as the LCMS gets contaminated and loses sensitivity. Um, and so certainly, I, you know, I think, I think you bring up a great point, Tim, something that I've always wondered about this, you know, um, if we do this LOQ study, right, we, we set our lower limits of quantitation uh, based on a nice clean, you know, column with just a few injections on it after we just took care of the capillary and all of that. So I mean, it's an instrument with a capillary. Um, then, you know, as it gets dirty, are some of those LOQ metrics and that still relevant, you know, or, or is this a situation where we should use historical internal standard intensities? Because if they go down, then doesn't that mean you should fix something with the instrument? I don't, I don't know. Um, and James is asking, would it be better to set it on number of injections as opposed to the day's batch? Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I am definitely not going to say that what we're, what we're planning on doing um, is best. And I do think that, you know, we'll probably get more experience with the assay and, and start to learn a little more. Um, but, and yeah, I see that's Chris is saying, start with 30% for their assays and they're new and they're more experienced, confident, move to move higher to 50% within batch uh, as well as the other QA parameters. Yeah. So there's definitely a, a lot of, a lot of heterogeneity um, out there and only some level of uh, evidence-based guidelines. Um, so, so I'm going to take this slide as a win for us, right? There was, as opposed to the, the sort of QC placement in that where there was very clear reasoning behind why it would be bad. It seems like uh, nobody necessarily uh, has major issues with this. And a great question, do you include signal to noise in your criteria? And the answer is no, I do not. And in fact, I, I love when people ask, ask me that because for some reason, it's one of the things that I remember very vividly learning in MSACL, this, this question of where do you calculate your noise? In fact, I think I bored my tech Kelly by actually waiting for her to ask that question just so I could like pounce. It's this over eager, here's something I know, right? Um, I just, I've seen signal to noise calculation vary so much. And even when I look at the baseline where I draw my sort of noise, it's so variable. And um, I guess too, maybe I should say for, for the work that we're doing, we're planning on doing and in the foreseeable future going to be doing, um, if I'm dealing with peaks down at a level where noise is detectable, um, I, I'm going to be very nervous if that makes any sense, right? Um, we're typically dealing with analyte concentrations that are high enough that we're comfortable and confident uh, that signal to noise would be nothing more than a, you know, um, meaningless uh, calculation. Um, so, yeah, so we do not calculate signal to noise. Uh, Russ is saying that it's cheating. Um, I probably learned this from Rush, so from, from Russ. So, you know, um, 
But I do think when you look at some of your samples, it, it's sort of clear that where you calculate the noise, it's, it can be very deceptive. So moving right along, right? And then uh, what's really nice is when you go to this site at, at Wadsworth, not only do they have laid out all of those procedural um, issues, but they also have the, the recommended validation studies. Um, and I think that that's a very helpful, um, you know, starting point. So one of the first set of validation studies are the stability. And so we're actually planning uh, two separate stability studies. So the first would be what I call that collect to analysis, right? And so, as I mentioned, we're setting up comprehensive drug screening uh, for our system. And so we have a, a large number of physician offices that want to be able to do in-office point-of-care screening. So as part of this, we've also been identifying, you know, which of the point-of-care cups offer us adequate performance. We can do that in-office screen in the cup and then send the cup to our, our almost completed uh, off-site laboratory for confirmatory testing as needed. And so, you know, what I'm looking at is the uh, room temperature in the screening cup, um, at least 10 samples, and then refrigerated in the vacutainer. So once we receive the screening cup, that'll be transferred to a vacutainer. Um, and we would like to monitor that at two to eight C for seven days. And so, yeah, it's a good question. Are these biases for every sample to mean values? And, you know, so, that's something that I used to do a better job of, which, which I've probably fallen out of doing. And I probably should do. I, I used to, with validations, I used to say, you know, I want this mean difference and no one sample to exceed this difference. Because I think that those are two very important metrics. So in this case, what we were thinking was actually the, the, mean, uh, the mean value, right? So plus or minus 20%. Um, and I realize that that seems a little excessive, but what we're trying to do is to, to keep in mind just the error of the analysis. Um, although I guess we could do one on same batch, which could potentially uh, save that. But then the other thing there is, you know, making sure that there's no trend, right? So if you have something refrigerated for seven days, even if it's within the, um, within the mean error, you know, if you're seeing that trend down, that's perhaps worrisome. Although, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, so is that our, is that at our lower limit of the measurement interval? Yeah, so good question, Brad. Um, we were not planning on doing these at the lower limit of the measuring interval, mostly just because I worry a little bit that I'm going to fail something on stability, which is really more of a um, you know, accurate, uh, analytic measurement capacity. Um, but we also don't want to go so high, um, you know, that it's, it's, uh, within the error. And so what we were planning on doing was 10 times the LOQ, right? So for buprenorphine, for instance, this would be at about 10 nanograms per mil with an LOQ of, of one nanogram per mil. Um, and Russ is saying, so yeah, so that, that's a great question, thinking about the concentration that you're doing. Um, 
And so Russ is saying, if it's per sample, get this a lot from New York, how good would a sample measurement need to be total error, much less than 20% to pass this for every sample in the absence of stability. Um, yeah, and, and so I think what, what Russ is, is getting at is, if I'm summarizing correctly, um, is that, um, oh, whew, thank you, Tim. 10 times LO, LOQ is a good guidelines. Um, so I feel good, thank you. Um, you know, <laughs> gonna get one eventually, right? If I keep up, keep saying up here talking. Um, but no, I, I think that Russ is getting at the point that uh, we're talking about an accurate result, right? And so what goes into that accurate result? It's, it's the instability of the sample. It's the bias in our measurement. It's the imprecision in our measurement. It's, it's all of these other factors. And so if I'm giving myself a massive 20% error on just the stability part. And then I also add in bias and add in precision and to Brad's question, you know, what, what if we're at different levels and, you know, maybe someone who should have been positive is now just below. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a very good point. So, you know, uh, probably need to, to rethink this um, and think about what sort of bias, you know, uh, and you know maximum for each sample so yeah oh, i think it's a it's a very good question um certainly you know uh so one of the other things to keep in mind with buprenorphine we're we're fairly happy and, and comfortable because we actually are are measuring the analytes which are coming out of the patients, right? So the, the glucuronides versus, uh, and parent drug, whereas when we move to our opioids like morphine, there's a question of, you know, what are we going to do our stability studies with? You don't want to spike morphine into the urine cup because really you're looking at the stability of the morphine glucuronide. And so that's certainly something we've been talking about. Do we attempt to, to buy those glucuronides just for the stability study? Um, you know, are we going to do sort of a broader evaluation of, of patients who, you know, are likely to be positive or just start, start uh, testing them? So that's another, another thing for us to think about as we move on. Uh, but then the second study, and this is one which I, I also learned at, at uh, MSACL, although I didn't clearly learn the, uh, the, the acceptance criteria, um, but this injector port stability, right? I, I think that this is a great one to do, which is, you know, once you've actually extracted your samples in 96 well plates, you know, just let them sit for 24 hours in your auto sampler. Can you re-inject them and get accurate results, right? And I put here our number as 10, but realistically we'll do more than that, right? Because it's not that much work to re-inject an entire plate, for instance, of accuracy samples. And I, I think that can be really helpful because then if you've extracted the samples, especially for us, so one of our one of our hospitals is a pediatric hospital, right? And so we're always thinking about what can we do with the smallest amount of sample? And so if we need to do a, a re-injection, I think knowing the injector port stability uh, can be very helpful. And certainly I have seen cases where some of our more hydrophobic compounds, uh, thinking about some work way, way long ago with the uh, free thyroids, you know, they can stick to everything. Um, I'm not sure if, I know, I know Kim, you guys have a, a good testosterone method 
Um, I don't remember seeing that too much with testosterone, but we were doing a liquid liquid, so keeping an organic solvent. Um, but certainly as you get some of these compounds sort of uh, cleaned up from the matrix, sometimes you can have uh, very poor stability in the actual uh, 96 volt plate. Um, so something to look at both for purposes of, you know, stability during the run, as well as stability if you need to, to re-inject. Uh, so then our, our accuracy studies, right? This one, I think, you know, most folks uh, fairly, um, let's see, FDA, GOP guidance bars, think of QC rules, batch acceptance, uh, two thirds of samples within 15% error for every stability sample use and a mean of less than 15. Huh. So, you know, I've always found those criteria an interesting one when it's, you know, two thirds of samples must be within this. Um, I always, in part, I really like it because it recognizes that there's imprecision and bias. And so, you know, results could vary, but then I've always sort of felt like, are we saying that a third of our samples can be, can be kind of, kind of bad, um, which of course they're not, right? They're, they're trying to, to actually say that, you know, at a minimum two thirds, you have to be better. But yeah, I, I like that. I like that guidance. And I think, I think everybody can agree that it's that it's better than what I had there before, right? So, so, so let's try that. Uh, mean with, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think those that sounds like a bar that we should still be able to clear. Um, uh, and then, of course, look at the the trend there. Um, so to validation studies, right? So I, I put minimum of 20 positive samples. I think it's important to also intermix some, some negatives, make sure you're not getting uh, the false positive results. Um, and, you know, this 20 actually, in case you're a cap accredited lab, you know, caps minimum for an LDT is actually to have a, a minimum of 20 samples. Frankly, the odds of only doing 20 are, are, very low, right? Most likely we'll do, we'll do more. Um, <clears throat> I noticed Tim mentioned the batch acceptance criteria, more sensitive systemic error if used put a limit on uh, how far the outlier could be acceptable. Yeah, so I think that's a great point. Um, not just saying two thirds have to be within a certain amount, but you know, no sample should be worse than, I, I've always kind of liked that approach. Um, because you're, you're sort of saying how bad could we do and have it still be acceptable. That's a great, great point, Tim. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna adjust this. See, this is, I shouldn't have even made this PowerPoint ahead of time. I should have just, just come here and just, just typed. Um, but we'll just move on. Right. Um, so then, uh, Next part, precision, reproducibility, both intra and inter run. Um, so I mentioned in sort of our development phase, we did that five by five study. Um, so, uh, you know, that's something where I just feel like it's a very uh, achievable uh, Monday through Friday approach. I think it's actually in the ClinChem guidelines uh, for if you're submitting a new method. I think uh, Ross and Andy wrote those, as I recall. Um, which coincidentally, I, I've been reading those guidelines and requirements far more now that I've started uh, 
reviewing papers than I ever did when writing them. And I don't know if that says that like, I'm just that jerk who wants to hold other people to a higher bar than I would hold myself to, but um, they're really helpful uh, suggestions. So if you guys are ever looking for them, there's, a, there's some very nice guidance out there for what's needed to prove your method is, is adequate for publication. And I think that uh, Endocrine Society also has some of those for general clinical endocrinology, I believe. Um, and I think that those can be helpful places if you're approaching method validation in a clinical lab and you're thinking, what is kind of the bar that I should be, should be passing? Um, but anyways, uh, so that five by five came from there. I think it's a really helpful way to get your sort of uh, you know, first glance at how your precision is doing. Um, we're planning on our, our intraday TEM replicate injections of three levels of QC um, and then intraday uh, running the QC twice per day for 10 days. Um, and it seems like folks are saying that I have high standards, uh, five and 10. So Russ, are you saying high standards, like that's way too high a limit where you're going to clear it or high standards in terms of might be challenging to hit that? So I'll, ah, so yes, challenging. So might be worth us rethinking. I'll, I will say that those are based on the results of our five by five study. Um, where across those five days, we were, we were actually achieving um, the total variance of, I want to say it was around 7%. Um, so that's why I was, I was hoping here, but uh, you know, certainly want to good to know that I might want to rethink, rethink those. And yes, it is a great number because I am a great mass spectrometrist, Russ. Um, so thank you for that. No, clearly everybody here recognizes that, uh, that that's, that's not the case, right? Um, so the, the next study in our validation studies for New York State would be reportable range and then uh, analytic sensitivity limit of detection. Um, so the way that I've done these, uh, when we did our sort of initial assessment um, and uh, we actually just spiked a urine sample with pure compound and then performed serial dilutions. Um, we did analyze them in triplicate. Um, and what we were looking for is, first of all, and I should have put this first, um, making sure that all of our QA parameters were acceptable, right? So I would not consider uh, evaluating a peak if the retention time was off, if the ion ratio was off, um, if the internal standard recovery was off, although that's less of an issue. It really is more of, you know, when does your ion ratio fail? So for us, that's what I have found is actually setting our LOQ. Um, it's making sure that your qualifier uh, transition, which is ten, tends to be your le uh, less intense than your quantifier, um, is actually adequate. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the important parameters. But then, of course, beyond that, it's, you know, looking at the slope of the line. So for anyone who's used to, you know, audit or main standards or, or things like that, looking at the slope, um, and both the slope and the the R squared, and honestly, you can you can typically eyeball right, especially at the the uh, 
high end while I try to be a chemist and don't like to talk about eyeballing. Um, it, it's really true. You can start to see as you get those really high concentrations, whether it's self-suppression or, or the analyte of interest, uh, bleeding into the internal standard, whatever's causing it, you, you tend to see that sort of, that sort of hook, which then, you know, kind of makes me leery. Um, so, uh, and then of course at the low end, typically we're, we're set by our quality assurance parameters. Um, so, uh, and then, you know, there is the, the question of the, the limit of detection. And I have to be honest, I never liked this question um, just because I feel like when setting up a triple quad quantitative method, it's, it's really about what you can report down to accurately. And so this question of what can you actually detect, I don't know, it just seemed like if I'm going to report it out as less than one, does it matter if I can, you know, detect 0 0.5? Um, but there I've seen different approaches to doing limit of detection uh, or quantitation. Our approach, honestly, is to just do limit of quantitation um, and say anything below our limit of quantitation, we, we won't report out. So might be situation. So certainly in our, in our opiate assay, we're in the process of adding six monoacetyl morphine. Um, and, um, you know, we, there we might want to know what is our actual limit of detection. Um, so, yeah. And one second, just saw a mess, uh, message. Uh, not sure I'm, I'm understanding uh, the question. Uh, Akram, would you mind asking, or I don't want to put you on the spot, but I also don't want to lose an opportunity for you and the rest of the audience to get some insight into a question that you and possibly others are, are wondering about. Um, Yeah. So certainly if you're, if you're able to ask or, or provide a little more detail, I would absolutely try to try to help with that. Sorry. Um, as we kind of continue on our, our validation studies, right? So, so the next would be the, the interference studies. Um, and so for these, I, I think that there's probably a, a couple ways um, that you can do that, right? So one thing that that we've done is just spiking uh, 10 blank urines with 10 XLOQ and analyze and looking to try to make sure that our responses, so that's analyte over internal standard are within 20% for all samples. Um, and honestly, typically what we've been seeing are uh, the raw area counts within 20%, right? So we're doing <clears throat> dilute and shoot. So you tend to think about having more matrix effect, but we are doing a tenfold dilution. Um, so it, it seems to be going well. Um, and of course, spiking uh, blank urine with an interference mix, and then either with or without the analyte of interest and making sure you're not seeing analyte and those, those blank urines that have been spiked with just the interference mix um, and making sure your responses are as you would expect for those samples where you added the interference and the analyte. Um, and those, I, you know, I have to be honest, I tend to think about those. I should have mentioned any sort of known interferences would be worth doing, right? So if you're developing a, uh, a methylmalonic acid, uh, 
you know, method, then, you know, there's certain interferences uh, that you should absolutely be adding. And who's going to help me out here? Why did I just forget uh, methylmalonic acids isobar that's present at like hundredfold more concentration? Is it succinic acid or? Anyways, sorry. Someone out here knows it. Um, uh, Joyce said yes. Okay. So, you know, if succinic acid, thank you. Um, sorry, I was blanking on that. Um, but certainly whenever you have certain assays and there's published interferences, um, endogenous or exogenous that you're likely to encounter, it's good that you actually test your method for those, right? There's a huge number of things which we're not going to know. So at the minimum, we want to try to control those things that we do know, right? And so we've been spending some time uh, going through the literature saying, what are interferences that people have noticed in buprenorphine methods and uh, fentanyl methods? things like that. Um, but after that, I really do think it is that kind of real life experience. Um, and Deb did a good job talking about this. Uh, I'm calling them the suboptimal samples, right? These are the samples that you are a little nervous to put on your automated analyzer, let alone your six-figure mass spec, right? These are these are the the hematuria samples. These are the the cloudy urines. These are these are those those really nasty things that you can find. And let's just see how your method works, right? Um, so we've actually been running through a lot of these, um, and and our mass spec tech Kelly has just been doing a fantastic job, and and you know she's been looking for samples. And one of the things she's been doing is looking for samples that sort of light up our drugs of abuse panel on the, on the main automated chemistry analyzer and testing them. So we've had two, I think, kind of interesting situations, which I'll just throw out to you, right? So this is our, our norfentanyl um, peak, which, you know, it, it eludes uh, one and a half minutes. So it's, it's not in sort of the flow through, not all the way at the end. Um, overall, relatively nice peak structure, lots of sensitivity. Um, we've had this one patient sample um, where you can see that the retention time is, is relatively the same. But with this patient sample, we always get this certain amount of peak splitting. Um, we have not seen this on any other patient sample, um, but we have rerun this exact patient's urine multiple times and we always see it. Uh, now we have done a, a two-fold dilution. Uh, so if we dilute the patient sample, um, one part patient sample to one part water, and then work that up using our, our one to 10 dilute and shoot approach, uh, we do reduce our area counts as you would expect. And we get rid of that peak splitting. And I'm calling it splitting because I, I do think that that's splitting, even though it's, it's subtle, um, it's there. You know, in part, I'm nervous that we're seeing this already. In part, I'm happy that we are running a lot of these patient urines and trying to see how things actually look. And has anybody ever in, encountered things? Um, ah, Nora has a great question. Uh, could it be a co-elution? Yes. So, so it's a great question, right? Is it possible that there's, there's something else eluding here with this patient sample, which is causing a separate peak? So I definitely can't rule it out, right? Um, you know, I think that when we look at our QA metrics, our ion ratios aren't perturbed. 
Um, and so, you know, and yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a great point that, you know, when we dilute it, we could lose that lower concentration interference. Um, so I, I think it's, I, I can't say it's not uh, an interference, uh, a coalution. Um, we were not thinking it was um, just because of the fact that the ion ratios were passing. And our sense was that even though we would reduce the concentration when we do that twofold dilution, we felt like if there was an interference, it's there at appreciable enough amounts that it would still be present. But that could be incorrect thinking. Um, see some great suggestions about you know running an MS scan on the sample instead of just the MRM next injection, which absolutely we can do. Um, and then of course, uh, using the longer gradient, right? To see if they split further, which I think brings up sort of uh, that point that we talked about last time at chromatography, that it's never a bad idea to have evaluated, possibly even validated a, uh, a longer uh, gradient for all of your methods, right? In case you encounter something like this, um, why not just sort of, you know, double your chromatography runtime uh, to get that. Um, so. Yeah, this is this is still a mystery to us. Um, oh yeah, or another great yeah, or longer column right to split further. Absolutely, uh, increasing the column right. So we're using a fifty millimeter column. Uh, Hundred millimeter is not uncommon to see. So get better chromatography, but longer inject to inject times is my understanding with the uh, longer columns. We also had another one which I thought was was really interesting and this was this was a, a patient who uh, I think almost tested positive for everything we we screened for um, and this is looking at at EDDP um, and you can see our 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 sample really got got kind of kind of butchered there now these EDDP concentrations are spiked in it at different levels and so I apologize the area counts aren't as meaningful but that that peak shape with that sort of hump on it um you know that was uh that was unexpected to see but as I said also kind of kind of good to be seeing these now right because it's better to see them now than see them when we're when we're live with with patient testing. Um, and certainly for me, this is one of the reasons that I, I do think that thinking about sample prep is, is sort of worthwhile. Um, although that being said, you know, as I, as I bring these up and it's not that I don't want to dwell on, on these ugly peaks, cause I'm happy to dwell on these ugly peaks if anyone has thoughts, but honestly, we just haven't been able to, to get any resolution on, on what might be, be causing some of these, um, but, you know, we've had interferences in other peaks, which we've talked about, right? So folks here might remember we, we talked about our, our norbuprenorphine uh, interference. Um, and I'm calling it interference. It's a, a closely eluding peak um, that has similar transitions. Um, so one of the things we did was actually send one of those samples that we encountered with that uh, closely eluding peak out to a reference lab. And it was sort of reassuring because they actually returned a result of interfering presence, uh, present, interfering substance present. Um, so we clearly weren't the only ones um, detecting this. But, you know, I also want to kind of highlight that because, um, you know, this is sort of, you know, 
we're all winners, right? Like when we do mass spectrometry, like, uh, you know, you kind of feel like an, an idiot when you're the person pushing on the pole door. But for some reason, if there's a big group of you all trying to push on it, you feel a little better. Um, and so that's at least the feeling I had when our reference lab also came back and said interfering substance. Um, or just to, to quote the Bible, you know, a fool when he holdeth his peace is counted wise, right? Um, so mass spec doesn't always have to give give the right answer, but it's really important that we not let it give the wrong answer, that we tell it when to, when to keep its mouth shut. Um, and so it's not good to have these interferences, but it's absolutely essential that we recognize when we have them and we don't turn out bad results. So, you know, I think as we kind of move along, right, so our validation studies, um, we're planning a, a, a carryover. Um, this will be kind of that, I always get, I always forget it and I get tired of writing into that CLSI procedure, what is it, like 21 or some samples, the low, 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 high, high, low, high, high, etc. cetera. Um, I think another important aspect of carryover studies, too, is, you know, making that one of your quality assurance metrics, or at least that's what we're planning on doing. So I think it's important. Um, and that would be, you know, we can only check carryover for the levels that we can actually detect, right? So I can try and see if there's carryover with 2000 nanograms per mil of buprenorphine, because maybe that's all I can get my hands on. And maybe it's because I think no human being will ever have any more than this. Um, but especially when you're doing drugs of abuse and you have that potential for people to adulterate urine and put, you know, a 25 milligram tablet into 40 mils of urine, you could be encountering fairly substantial levels. And so I think it's good to not only test your method for carryover, but to have it so that anytime you detect a sample, with levels above what you've actually tested for carryover, make it part of your routine process that you re-inject and reanalyze the samples that precede that to make sure that there wasn't uh, carryover. And of course, if you've validated that your samples are stable in the injector port, then that's a, a little maybe easier to do um, the next day. Uh, but of course, you know, as I as I mentioned that uh, a lot of what we're talking about is carryover sort of, you know, either in the injection needle or in the column or tubing or things like that. Um, I've heard horror stories about people actually having carryover in sort of the, the sample prep approach where you're, you know, maybe doing a dry down of, of samples with a, with a nitrogen stream or something like that and, and how one actually uh, manages that kind of carryover when it could affect the plate and not necessarily in the, the same run list as the, the work list. That's, I think, yeah, scary to think about, but not sure if anybody's actually experienced that where you have that sort of uh, unexpected carryover in the sample prep, but certainly heard about it. Nobody? That's good. All right, so I won't worry about it anymore. Good, thank you, Ping. Um, yeah, so so as we're sort of moving along, I, that those are our planned validation studies, and I'll just mention we are still moving forward on other things. So we've we've modified our uh, our SOP a bit. So this was our SOP sample prep for the opioids. And one of the things we were concerned about were our, our isobars, right? The morphine, hydromorphone, uh, which are at the same mass, and then codeine, hydrocodone, 
Um, I'm just mentioning here because, you know, I always forget this, that you look up molecular weight on Wikipedia, right? And, and that's the sort of summed mass of all of these. So it's going to include some percentage of C13s and deuteriums and, and oxygen 18s and things like that. Uh, so what we really care about is this monoisotopic mass, which is the, the most abundant mass uh, of, of that compound. And so when we, when we attempted to look at these, we actually had a, a fair amount of overlap between our isobars. So we had to modify our method a bit. Um, and interestingly, the addition of the ammonium formate uh, really helped us with our chromatography shifting those um, out of the way. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Peng, I see you said we had such instances, uh, but for GCMS analyses, this is going back to that sample prep issue. Do you mind talking about those a bit? Just because I think it's good for us to, to hear about these things, to remember that they can happen. Sure. So we we used to analyze uh, plant hormones and those were super, super low in concentration. And then we had to use a GCMS and there was a drying step after uh, after uh, uh, deutilization, right? So then we had to uh, take it up in FS state. So somewhere, I think somewhere along the way, we use uh, six tubes to, to dry six vials uh, simultaneously. And then I think I was away for a week or two for, I forgot for what, but then somebody else was doing the experiment, right? So then, then when I came back, they said, there's always this, uh, on this position of, of this uh, uh, nitrogen stream, there's always something uh, happening to the vial once we take it up again. <laughs> So then I, we never figured out what, what the reason was, but we had to, essentially we cleaned everything again and then we swapped the places. It, it disappeared, it's no longer there, but uh, the carryover was, was true for that two weeks because we can see that uh, uh, in, the, in the data, right? But then we never figured out what the reason was. Sometimes I feel it's, it's really impossible to figure out uh, every every single uh, I don't know every single mistake or or every single uh, non idealities. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Hard to figure those out, but I think it's good for all of us to hear it as we think about you know how we're um, certainly. This is not the first time I've heard a story like that, and it makes me kind of nervous about doing these sort of. Uh, multi-vial, multi-position dry down approaches just because I can't even imagine how you would control that and how many patient results might go out the door before you detect that. Yeah, so thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, so we're not, we're not planning on, on doing that, uh, a dry down. We are, uh, you know, we're moving forward with our, with our opioids. Um, so we, we added in some ammonium formate, which I was kind of surprised that that helped us uh, quite a bit. Um, so we had to lower our starting conditions of B, but new chromatography is, is giving pretty good separation of those isobars as well as for the, the benzos. Um, we did have to re-optimize our source for the opioids. We were able to get almost a twofold increase in area counts. Um, but I think for me, you know, that's kind of the, the final thought I have to say, you know, it's just this, you know, I, I see all these reports of these, you know, 65 drug and metabolite single run 
five minutes inject to inject samples. And I just always find myself wondering, like, how do people do it? I mean, you know, like it's, uh, I feel like there's so much work and optimization and control and fine tuning that goes into, you know, just our, our small panels that, um, you know, I think it's the right way to go for us to do uh, a few separate panels where we try to, you know, part out those, those, uh, analytes and metabolites that can go with each other. Um, but yeah, certainly, uh, it does in the back of my head, you know, I think, I don't know, it would be a lot faster to have, have one method that's, you know, six minutes inject to inject on one column. Um, I'm just, just, uh, hard for me to wrap my brain around how folks actually do that. So I wanted to make sure I, I mentioned that because, you know, maybe there are folks out here with, with really great uh, multi-analyte panels that have some, some secrets to success um, they could share. And yes, it's a great point Russ. West Guard rules probably don't apply easily to multi-analyte methods. I can't even imagine evaluating the QC for, 65 drugs and metabolites in a single run. Um, I don't know how one does that, um, but certainly folks do. And, uh, you know, plenty of things I can't imagine how we do that, that people do every day. Um, so not the approach we're taking, uh, but I do think that we've, we've definitely made some headway uh, on our, our sort of, you know, parsed out, parted out panels. Um, and it's been great to be able to, to talk about it here. Um, so that's, that's all I, I had planned. Uh, so Brad's asking for your hydrolysis process. Do we have a separate glucuronide control? Yeah. So that's a great question, right? So that'll be the, the next step for us, which is, you know, optimizing that hydrolysis. And of course, once we start adding the glucuronidase, I also want to make sure that we're doing some sort of sample cleanup, like a solid phase extraction. Um, the answer to your question is yes. You know, we have from Cerulean, uh, or I'm probably, I think I'm allowed to say name I, when I said it. So it's, it's said it's out there. Um, we purchased uh, some of the glucuronide metabolites. And so we're going to use them for, for two things. One is um, checking the efficacy of the glucuronide hydrolysis. And then a second would be a sort of uh, daily uh, glucuronidase control Um I've seen some some pretty good data that it's challenging to get uh, optimal cleavage conditions for all of the analytes, all the opioids and the benzos. And so the hope right now is to have at least two um, controls, you know, uh, like a, maybe a benzo and an opioid, uh, maybe one that's easier to, to cleave, one that's harder to cleave or, or something like that. And Russ has mentioned the cap checklist specifically states you have to have a process control uh, for steps such as glucuronidation. Um, so we are a CAP accredited lab. And so it's good. We were planning on do that, doing that, even though I hadn't known that that, uh, was called out in the checklist. Um, and maybe good to mention that I didn't hear, um, point out all of the, the cap, uh, validation requirements. Um, certainly, you know, they have some matrix effect, uh, requirements there. They have some, um, 
identification and internal standard recoveries, things like that. I will say that if you follow the New York State guidelines, I think it's highly unlikely that you wouldn't also satisfy all the CEP guidelines. Um, and I did leave the CEP guidelines out just because I know MSACL is a you know sort of international community. Um, and so I'm not sure how, how relevant CAP is to all of us, although certainly it's a, it's a good starting point. So. But yeah, good question. So we will absolutely have to be thinking about our glucuronidase controls. Oh yes, and yeah, so uh, five MCL uh, means five microliters in, in Josh writing. Um, there was a reason that at some point I started writing uh, MC, L instead of the, the U L I, I think it was a good reason. I can't remember the reason now. Um, but I, I, I do do write microliters as lowercase M lowercase C capital L well, sometimes I, I mess it up, but, um, and then there's a question from Joyce, uh, if the standard linearity is not good, would you consider quadratic calculation? So am I correct, Joyce, you're, you're thinking about, um, when we're setting our reportable range or when we're actually calibrating the assay? Um, so here is our question. So for our uh, low resonance and triazolin, as you say, the low resonance itself has two chlorides, so, and we use deuteray 4 as our internal standard. So low resonance itself will leak into the, will overlap with the internal standard transition at the high concentration. So we can see the standard curve become plateau at the high end. And I'm considered to use quadratic calculation. It looks fine for control. I just wonder if anyone use this calculation for a standard curve and patient sample, of course. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so Russ had said yes. And Dorothy has also said yes. I will say that I have not, although I don't have the experience they do, so that, that doesn't mean much. I also tend to, I don't know, I get nervous when I have to go into quadratics, um, which isn't to say that it's, it's bad. Clearly, um, it can be a very good approach. Um, and what you're highlighting is a very real problem. Um, but yeah, I just get nervous with things that I don't fully understand and, and quadratics goes into there. Um, but clearly it, there's a, seems there's a, a time and place to do it and that you can do it. And we have folks actively doing it. Who's you know results. I have a lot of confidence in. uh, Tim's mentioning careful second order curves, tricky at higher levels where the curve starts. So, but yeah, it sounds like that is an approach. Thank you so much, Josh, for sharing with us today and for the entire series. It was, I think, one of my most favorite things of the whole MSACL Connect uh, platform over the past year. So thank you for volunteering to be the guinea pig here. Yes. No, thank you for the <laughs> opportunity. Um, and also thank you so much to all of our mentors who have been on today. Um, really fantastic job. I love how interactive it's been. And so many of you out there obviously have so much experience and um, wealth of knowledge to contribute to the community. So thank you for doing that here today. And also to my co-host, Chris, thank you. For more details, if you'd like to stay on a chat, chat a bit. We're here for everybody else who has to take off. Stay safe and stay connected.